Welcome to The Naked Monk. The Naked Monk is for those exploring life and the human condition. We are interested in ideas that were once the domain of religion or spirituality, but which today include existentialism, even atheism. Call it philosophy as a way of life, the yearning not just for what feels good, but for what is good. Hi, I'm Stephen Scatini. I was raised Catholic before I trained in depth as a Buddhist monk. Today I'm untethered, but I'm as fascinated as ever by what life can be and the creativity with which we pursue it. My guests and I are seekers of freedom, a deep life, and the wisdom of the heart. Come on in and join us. I'm talking today with Ron Purser. Ron is a professor of management at San Francisco State University and a longtime practitioner of Zen Buddhism. For years, he's been publicly circumspect about his interest in Buddhism, but recently has allowed it to come to the fore. We talk today about popular mindfulness, about traditional Buddhist mindfulness and the notion of ethics. We discuss religion, secularism and science, and end up with the revolutionary potential of the Dharma as it enters a very different milieu, one that, unlike all other cultural forms of Buddhism, is deeply fragmented and faced with unprecedented existential challenges. Here's our conversation. So welcome to this Naked Monk podcast. We're here today with Ron Purser, a professor of management at San Francisco State University. Welcome to the Naked Monk, Ron. Well, thank you. Pleasure to be here. So, today we're going to talk a little bit about mindfulness. Um, not same old mindfulness. We're going to take some new, slightly critical approaches to it. But first of all, I want to talk about your your positioning. You're a professor of management, not a professor of Buddhism. And as I understand it, you sort of kept the, the Buddhist... Uh, connection sort of in the background for quite a while and it's recently come to the fore. Is, is that so? Have I got it right there? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's right. Um, so what changed your attitude towards this? How, how did it suddenly become an asset for you or did you want to make it <laughs> to an asset? Well, yeah, I've always sort of had this, uh, this desire somehow to bring uh, my my love and study of practice of, 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 of Buddhism into my professional life, but it's influenced what I've done. But I would say, you know, four or five years ago or so, when I began to see how popular mindfulness was becoming, especially as it started to make its way into the corporate world, I felt I had a uh, an opportunity or an opening to quite explicitly shift my professional research and writing in, in, into this domain. So uh, there, there have been some other things I've, you know, started was kind of precursors to that. I, I, I was very much interested in creativity uh, in the field of, of organizations and management and the role of paradox. And, and those subjects actually were quite uh, mainstream, even in the field of organizational behavior organizational studies so uh, I had done some work with Albert Lowe up in Montreal actually uh, I think I mentioned that to you a while back uh, 
who is the uh, director of the Montreal Zen Center, and we, we collaborated a little bit on a paper on the uh, utility of, of looking at the pedagogy of, of Zen koan training, uh, how that might actually help the executives to deal with paradoxes and dilemmas. So that was that was about four or five years ago. But yeah, the real shift came when uh, I began to see the uh, mindfulness become extremely mainstream and popular. Now that's interesting. Your training was more in Zen before this, was it, than, than in mindfulness? Uh, yeah, I think that's fair to say. Zen and, and the Tibetan Nyingma tra- tradition as well. Okay, so, so mindfulness has become a sort of vortex that's sucking us all in as it becomes more popular. It certainly is is become mainstream, and I think it is having loopback effects uh, on traditional Buddhism. There's been some writing on that recently. Jeff Wilson's book uh, is an excellent resource, Mindful America, and he actually talks about the mutual transformation between secular mindfulness and, and Western traditional Buddhist. So, yeah, you think you're seeing even how Western traditional Buddhist centers are now adapting their offerings actually to be more marketable to the appeal of, uh, popular appeal of mindfulness. So one of the issues that you've had with mindfulness, and and I have too, and many people have, is the question of where it stands exactly in, in reference to the, I mean, when I say mindfulness, I mean today's popular mindfulness, how it stands in, in relation to mainstream, well, not even mainstream Buddhism, but I think actually the, 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 the source teachings on mindfulness, uh, the Satipatthana Sutra, perhaps. Um, and there seems to be, well, there are accusations of a watering down. There's a concept of mindfulness as being bare attention, which is not really very accurate. as being something which is, in the most popular conception, as being something which is an emptying the mind of thoughts, which is anything but what the Buddha taught. So I think the common theme here is that, that mindfulness has to have an ethical component. And I'm interested in how you see that ethical component and whether it's present or absent or whether we need more care to bring it into more popular uh, mindfulness teachings. Yeah, well, there's, you raised a lot of points. I think I'll come back to some of the early ones you, you brought up uh, later. Yeah, I think this is such a contested, debatable, and ongoing work in progress, the way we're trying to to, to get our hands around mindfulness in the West. But yeah, your point about ethics and the ethical components of mindfulness, even within Buddhist traditions, uh, there's debates about whether mindfulness practice is inherently ethical. Uh, I don't want to get into the details of different schools of thought about those debates, but I think maybe we could start with talking about just the word mindfulness itself and perhaps start with the premise that we can think of perhaps different gradations or, or levels of mindfulness. And I'm really drawing upon some recent work of, of Venerable Ajahn Amaro, who's really helped me kind of conceptualize, you could say, the territory or the topology here. I think it's very helpful. So you could think of uh, sati or this, uh, at, at different levels of development, and, and probably the base level would be just simply the act of paying attention. 
but that's not the, see, that's not the entire meaning, at least from uh, a Buddhist uh, framework of sati. But it's definitely a legitimate uh, base level uh, understanding of mindfulness. But if you equate mindfulness with bare attention or non-judgmental awareness, I think you run the risk of cutting it uh, short or uh, actually moving into some some errors. And so, and one of the when when sorry to interrupt you, but when you say a risk, you make it sound as if there could be a negative. Well, effect. and a lot of people take uh, they I, take objection to this. No, I I think that. The way of putting it is we might be shortchanging mindfulness for its its full potential if we equate it only with thinking of it as simply the act of paying attention. Because the, the simply the act of paying attention really is somewhat neutral. Uh, an, a cat, for example, uh, that's getting ready to pounce on a, on a mouse is, is paying really a great deal of attention. It's exhibiting you know quite a lot of mindfulness in that moment. But the object of awareness is is the mouse. Uh, so it is focused concentration, and uh, it does have a purpose in mind. But I think that uh, and it does help it achieve its goal. It does help achieve its goal. So, but you see, I think that's where that's where we start from in, in terms of trying to understand mindfulness, and, and it is often portrayed as, as you know paying attention to the pr- present moment with bare attention. But the the risk I see is coming to an erroneous sort of self-deceptive conclusion that, okay, so long as I'm mindful, whatever I do must be okay. Okay. And, 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 and yeah, I think that uh, that in and of itself is, is, you know, a risk. Let me interrupt you and say then, okay, what is the goal of mindfulness? Well, it depends who you're asking the question to. Well, I'm asking you. <laughs> okay, well, if I speak with my traditional Buddhist hat on, yeah. even in the Satipatthana, uh, it's the Satipatthana Sutra, the Mindfulness uh, Sutra, it's a direct path to realization. If What's you, that Well, seeing through the delusion of, of a sense of self as, as having a solid sense of agency, and also seeing through the, the projected world that that self creates creates the dualistic sort of experience of being separate from the world that it sees. Is it possible to say then that that's sort of the antithesis of, of a goal-oriented uh, inquiry? Well, yeah. I mean, you could get into uh, again. It depends who you ask. If you ask the non-dual Mahayana, uh, Vajrayana. Uh, people, let's talk about non-dual wisdom or non-dual realization, which then uh, we we get into a, another murky territory of why practice if if the whole point of practice is to transcend the idea of, of one who is practicing. But I think that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> so I think coming back to this idea of this simple act of paying attention, it's a good place to start. But see, that's just the point. It, it's the place we. It's a. It's it's a starting point, and there are other levels of mindfulness uh, that are conjoined with other mental factors. And and if you want me to get into that, I can. But I think that uh, the point being is that it's a complex uh, subject which I think is still being worked out. 
But I think you're raising some interesting points about what is the relationship of contemporary or popular mindfulness, if you want to call it that, to Buddhist understandings of mindfulness, and do they even need to necessarily have any sort of relationship? Now, I think there's a debate going on here, and you did raise a point that some of the critiques are that it's a watering down, but I don't think that's my position at all, and I think that a lot of contemporary advocates of mindfulness have, have tried to frame Buddhist critiques as simply being fundamentalists that are worried that uh, some idealized, purified, original, authentic Buddhist uh, uh, understanding of, of, of the Dharma or of mindfulness practice is being denatured or diluted or watered down. And unfortunately, I think that the dialogue has sort of gotten to a point where there's a lot of talking past each other. And I really think that's quite an unfounded appeal to a fundamentalism because that's really not, at least from socially engaged Buddhists, I don't think that that's really the core. And I think uh, they're kind of missing, or at least... uh, unfairly hosing that that's really where we're coming from and that's really not really true so let me just go back one step and say okay when i asked you what is the goal of mindfulness let's take that to the the commercial uses or the popular uses of mindfulness what do you think the goal is there well again i I think In many that, cases, it's to, well. Let's let's say when when we set the goal, or when the goal is set as being an increase in productivity, uh, an increase in in, in success, mm-hmm. as it's being used in, in corporate life. What are the consequences of this? Is this a good thing? Well, I, I think that we can differentiate first. To be clear, I think the uses of mindfulness and you said commercial uh, interest, from differentiating that from, uh, let's say, the use of mindfulness-based interventions in in clinical settings. Okay. Uh, I'd like to set those two apart because uh, I think when we change context so qualitatively differently uh, in nature, and we're talking about two different uh, applications so your question is more directed to, I would call it more of an instrumentalized uh, application of this base level mindfulness that I just spoke of, which can be used to increase one's concentration and focus and attention towards some sort of instrumental goal. And if that instrumental goal is being able to work more productively and efficiently at Goldman Sachs so that I can maintain my 80-hour work week grueling uh, schedule, I guess it probably would have some sort of usefulness for that purpose. But I think that brings into play, I mean, I think really the question of how political, economic, and cultural, even ideological forces are shaping the way that we can Actually, uh, you know, it basically comes down and how are regimes of power actually influencing the discourse and influencing the way that mindfulness is framed in the popular mind, in the popular, uh, in popular culture, in, in corporate culture. 
Okay, good. And to what extent is it is it ethical or potentially unethical? Well, see, that brings up a really, really fundamental aspect of the critique, I think, that we're moving towards. And that question is, who knows? It's an open question. And the question, who knows, uh, is often used by advocates of contemporary uh, corporate mindfulness people. Because they say, well, who knows what a little mindfulness might do for a leader or even a set of people that are practicing in a corporation to transform that company into something that's more uh, sustainable and compassionate and socially responsible. But that's my point. We don't know. It's, it's, it's uh, in a way, I think that we're really not acknowledging the role of faith even in secular-based applications of mindfulness. What do you mean by faith? Well, I'm using faith in a very different way. And I I really take this from one of my uh, colleagues and collaborators who I'm working with right now, Edwin Ning, who's at Deakin University in Australia. And what we're working on is this idea that you've heard the expression good faith, to act in good faith. We're using it more in a non-doctrinal sense, the sense that any conversation or any dialogue is based on some mm, uh, some level of, of good faith. Of course, there are dialogues that, that operate in bad faith as well. Yeah. But the question, who knows, uh, is is one of is a question of of faith. There's actually a, a some level of faith is or trust, implicit level of trust that. Well, let's let's put our trust in mindfulness, and who knows what it might do? It might transform this leader into the most benevolent person that we would never imagine becoming, or we might have trust in this practice that it could be a disruptive technology, as some corporate mindfulness advocates have put it, and actually have some sort of a collective effect in transforming that organization and transforming the corporate culture. So um, in this case, when we say the word mindfulness, then we're, we're assuming that people have, they are binding it with some ethical judgments or, or, or directions which which they already have. They consider mindfulness also to have an ethical component. So the question is, how arbitrary is that and to what extent does it reflect the Buddha's conception of the ethical life, the Eightfold Path? Well, yes, and I think this goes back to the really questionable premise that whether we have to base a contemporary mindfulness on anything that necessarily has to be uh, Buddhist in nature. I think there are presumptions, even among Buddhist critics, that secular contemporary mindfulness should adhere to the Eightfold Path or to some traditional Buddhist understanding of what those ethics should be. And I think that's why people, for example, like John Kabat-Zinn and MBSR teachers have been very reluctant to want to make any kind of ethical commitments in their pedagogy and in their curriculum and their reasons are because uh, we don't want to impose any other sort of doctrinal or religious 
uh, set of ethics on on uh, people who are coming to this not because they want to be Buddhist, because they want relief from their pain and, and, and stress. Yeah, that becomes an issue if you try to introduce it into the school system, for example. It becomes politically charged. Yeah, well, there's an awful lot of uh, legal challenges going on around that right now. But I think this, 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 this also brings up a more complex question of the whole divide or binary between what we say is secular versus religious. And we, from a Western point of view, uh, we come from a Judeo-Christian heritage. There's no, way, there's no denying that. I mean, uh, it, our culture has been shaped by Judeo-Christian traditions. And we're operating off this kind of Western-centric framework when we think about ethics. Yeah. We're, we're, we're seeing ethics through our own Judeo-Christian lens. And for that reason, I could see why there's reservations if we're interpreting ethics as being some sort of uh, external moral impositions or commandments that we have to adhere to. Of, of course, I'm not a philosopher, so but uh, we are operating more off of, you could say, a Kantian conception of, of ethics, a deontological idea that, you know, there are absolute fundamental right and wrong uh, types of actions. And that's sort of the framework that we're, that we're operating off of. But Buddhist ethics is, is not uh, coming from that, that framework uh, whatsoever. And That's very interesting. I yeah. think those of us in the West who were drawn to Buddhism rather than just mindfulness yeah. uh, have been drawn because we had problems with the Judeo-Christian position or the, the way that ethics had evolved and the guilt that goes along with it. Oh yeah, yeah. Original sin and versus in Buddhism, original purity. <laughs> so um, yeah, yeah I, I think that uh, it's this sort of misconception or unacknowledged uh, influence of our Judeo-Christian backgrounds, which then sort of shape our our way of thinking about ethics, and in particular when we start to bring mindfulness into the into the uh, dialogue here. Because Buddhist ethics, uh, it's always about intentions and how those intentions lead to certain results. Yeah. So, in other words, there's no one particular absolute uh, behavior you can say is either good or bad. It's uh, the intentions, do they result in suffering or do they result in, in greater uh, well-being and happiness or collective well-being and happiness? Yeah, it always has to be seen in context. In context and... It's, it's complicated because at some point even even ethics are only a tool for the soteriological uh, goals of Buddhist uh, uh, liberation. Uh, I mean, if you really want to get into a traditional Buddhist interpretation, Buddhists don't don't engage in karma. If they're if they're awakened, they're they're free of samsara. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I know, but I mean, this is the traditional. Uh, yeah. uh, take on it. And, and so even ethics is not an end, in, end in, in itself, even within the Buddhist path. It's a means to an end. Yeah. But I mean, if we take a more pragmatic approach, which I think you and I would generally do, or secular if you want, then we are looking at it as a way of life, and which involves basically getting through the day. And getting through the day requires a thousand little judgments, and sometimes some big ones. 
ethical judgments. So when, when I hear it said that mindfulness is non-judgmental, I'm thinking, this is not the mindfulness that I practice. No. Mindfulness helps me be more aware of my judgments and learn from them. Yeah, yeah, I think that uh, there uh, has been a lot of misinterpretation or you say, maybe we could say oversimplification. Well, I think this goes along with the idea that mindfulness is also bare attention, that it doesn't involve the thinking mind, that it's a cessation of thoughts. That, that is uh -huh. something that simply doesn't happen. We do think, and I think mindfulness definitely has a component of being present moment, but it also has a component of being thoughtful and of engaging the past and the future as well in order to make sense of the, the information that we gather as we are being in the present moment. You can't really, in practice, separate the two. No, I, I, I've written about that, and I have wrote an article called The Myth of the Present Moment, which really does call into question this fixation on the present moment. But that's, that's such a great selling point. People love that, the idea that they're going to learn how to live in the present moment and let go of all the other stuff. Right. Well, I think it does serve a, a therapeutic purpose in the sense of at least the clinicians are calling uh, how to reduce one's mental ruminations, uh, worrying about the past, worrying about the future, regretting the past. Uh, you know, these are uh, definitely anxiety-producing uh, mentations that uh, obviously can be uh, calmed down through focusing attention on one point and whether that one point is the present moment or whether it's a candle doesn't really make too much difference. But uh, again, I think we go back to what I, well, how we started is that if we reduce everything we think of in terms of mindfulness to this particular way of thinking about mindfulness is nothing but paying attention to the present moment non-judgmentally, I think we're selling ourselves short in terms of not allowing, uh, you could say, uh, mindfulness 2.0 to come into being, uh, which would be uh, going beyond uh, this operational definition that has sort of dominated both the clinical literature but also in popular media. So, uh, so, yeah. so what is the potential for our society moving into the future, the, the full potential that, that mindfulness and behind that Buddhism might, might expose us to or might, might help us explore? Well, I think one of the potentials is it's not just a matter of accepting things as they are, which is a kind of a, uh, a very common phrase that's used now paying attention to the present moment, accepting things as they are. That's good. I mean, that's therapeutic, uh, and it's good for personal, individual well-being. There's, there's no, I don't think anybody would dispute that or be against that. But uh, if we're going to take it to, to mindfulness 2.0, then uh, we have to open up mindfulness to its, its full range of potential, which means going beyond just this base-level definition of thinking of mindfulness as paying attention. Uh, accepting things as they are. We have to bring in the role of memory, as you put it. You know, memory is important. We have to bring in uh, the, the function of discernment, wise discernment, very, very important. And, and imagination, because imagination is not just accepting the way things are, but imagining how things could be different. Yeah. And, and, and so I think we... 
the, the current discourse has sort of um, limited that uh, development or that evolution. And uh, I, I think this is really where the socially engaged Buddhist critique is is trying to make their points, is that this potential of the mindfulness movement could really have a significant collective sense of uh, awakening if, if we can shift it in the direction of, of looking at uh, why is it that we, we have so much stress in our society to begin with? In other words, okay, we spend $300 billion a year on stress-related uh, illnesses and in, corporate, in the corporate sector is losing tremendous amount of profit even uh, due to these stress-related illnesses. So the solution, yes, is yes, let's, let's help individuals uh, learn how to reduce their stress. But let's go beyond that and start asking deeper questions about uh, the nature of, of what is generating these stressors in our society. And, and that goes beyond just uh, individual personal well-being and happiness. We have to go beyond the neoliberal agenda of, of placing the burden of, of health uh, entirely upon the individual. This is really a public health problem. When it's a public health problem, then we have to think in terms of systems. We have to think in terms of uh, institutional uh, mechanisms, uh, regimes of power. And these are the sort of aspects, I think, that have, have not become uh, illuminated yet in the, uh, in the uh, collective discourse of mindfulness. Do you think that the Buddha ever envisaged that? Do you think he was, he was looking or hoping for some sort of social revolution in, in, in developing his Sangha? Uh, it's hard for me to speculate on that, but um, <laughs> it's certainly... Uh, you know, I think there is something interesting. It's something around um, how not being caught in the mainstream, being on the fringes, is often where social uh, innovation and evolution occurs. I don't know. It's that's a it's a it's a. Uh, some people say yes. Some people say no. I, I really know how to how to respond to that particular question. I have one more question, which is maybe a little bit off-center, but I, I think and maybe this is just me indulging in my own personal history, or the history of my generation, our generation, I guess. But I think many of us came to Buddhism as our inherited religions became seriously problematic for us, and at the same time, we were also allowed socially to let go of them. And so this is... This has been, this is the one, if, if you'll excuse the word, religious outlet, which we've been able to maintain. So I think what I'm asking is how, or does this ethical life that, you're, you're, that we're talking about relate to the religious sensibility? And I mean not the organization of religion, but the religious sensibility, which is a, an inclination or a psychological drive. That, that humans in all societies exhibit. Yeah, I think I like that term, religious sensibility. I think it that way of putting it does not make us take sides as much between secular versus religious. Uh, I mean, we've often heard that mindfulness uh, has become popular because it is a secular religion of sorts. It's fulfilling a need. It's fulfilling a need, a human need of some kind. 
Yeah, so I think you're right that, you know, mindfulness is, if we think of it in these terms, as a religious sensibility. So it's not just so, just some set of isolated meditative techniques, but it is, uh, we are uh, seeing it as, uh, uh, as a way of generating wholesome actions that are uh, not just for personal benefit, but uh, that have reverberating effects in our interpersonal and social worlds. So I think, you know, it's tapping into, I guess, you know, if you want to sound like the Dalai Lama, it's tapping into that human tendency. We all want happiness. And we all want to, at some level, achieve what's beneficial, even though what what we might actually observe may not look that way. Uh, deep down, there is some, uh, at least then there's a presumption, maybe a, a, based on uh, some act of faith, that deep down there is a human tendency that wants to achieve something beneficial or, or, or some happier uh, way of being in the world. And, and so to me, that's where, you know, I think we can transcend this whole religious-secular divide. And I like that term, religious sensibility. There is an appeal, I think, going on here. Uh, and I think that's why it struck such a uh, incredible chord in the popular culture. Which I think that's what why we're seeing such a... Uh, a response uh, to mindfulness in the popular culture as well. It's filling a vacuum. It's filling a need. It's filling a vacuum. So that's great. Um, But I think that we should be aware and really uh, not lose sight of, because it is so new and it is so embryonic, that uh, our culture is conditioning how we understand and shape this uh, religious sensibility. And I think that the concerns, uh, uh, at least from some of the uh, socially engaged Buddhists, is that let's not stop at the level of personal well-being alone, and that uh, stress is not simply the, an individual problem, but it's, it's shaped by historical and structural forces as well. So in a way, I think what we're saying is that the mindfulness movement 2.0 should be one where we're moving towards sort of some sort of collective attentiveness to suffering and stress in society. Uh, Kevin Healy, one of my other colleagues and friends, uh, he refers to this as civic mindfulness. Civic mindfulness. Civic mindfulness, yes. I think of, of, of the Dharma in a social sense as being somewhat seditious. I always have to. And, um, what, what, do you, can, what do you mean by that? Can you elaborate on that? Well, it undermines the values which, uh, it undermines many of the values which we're required to adhere to to make society work. Uh, we have to question ourselves, especially we have to question our notion of right and wrong. We have to question our motives. Uh, why, for example, one of the big life changes for me was why, why do I believe in reincarnation? I was uh-huh. a Buddhist, I was a nice, committed, happy, contented, secure Buddhist, and I asked myself that question, and my whole world fell apart. So it's seditious in many ways, not just against Western society, but against uh, you know my own commitment to Buddhism, in a sense. Um, yeah. Well, I think that's really, really interesting, and I think uh, that is per- perhaps why we see some sort of border control going on with Buddhist mindfulness, because it may be actually uh, truly subversive, as you say, yeah. and, and that it, it, uh, 
it uh, if if the whole aim is the reduction of greed, ill will, and delusion, then that does call into question a lot of the capitalist machinery of how this society functions, based on uh, keeping inequality at, at a level that's uh, becoming uh, obviously unsustainable. The the global warming uh, and climate change is unsustainable. So we have we have at root uh, these the uh, sources of, of dukkha or suffering, which uh, David Loy has pointed out of in the traditional early Buddhist understandings, were fairly you know limited to the individual, but uh, because of our globalized uh, uh, capitalist financial uh, structure of our economy that uh, these forces of suffering are institutionalized to such an extent that they're beyond the uh, the force of any one particular person. So yeah, I think absolutely, absolutely, you're absolutely right that uh, there is this subversive element, which hopefully it, we're, we we talk a lot about basically how Buddhism uh, changes as it moves from one culture to another, and obviously it it will change as it moves to the West. But we don't talk a bit. Of, we don't talk that much about how Buddhism might change our Western culture. We we talk a lot about how we, we need to change Buddhism to adapt to our values and and, and our uh, culture. Yeah. But uh, there's a flip side to that, which you know I think this is really the the edge which has yet to cut into the very fundamental tenets of of Western society and its functioning in terms of a capitalist economy? Well, that's a very open question, as you say. I mean, Buddhism has always, in, in every other uh, iteration, every other embodiment, Buddhism has moved into a relatively homogenous culture and found it some sort of cultural expression there. But now it's entering a very fragmented culture. So I'm not sure we can even talk about what, I mean, people do talk about Western Buddhism, but I don't think it's going to be that simple by any means. No, no, it's uh, it's a whole different uh, epic. As you say, historically, when Buddhism moved out of uh, uh, India and migrated to China and Southeast Asia, it was all, you know, during a pre-modern period of time as well. And there were already existing, as you say, especially like in China, existing adherence to Confucianism or Taoism. And, and, and so I think we're, we're, we're dealing with, with a much more complex phenomena, uh, not only you know, from a time point of view, but as you say, from a spatial point of view, uh, we're looking at uh, such diverse uh, components in, in Western society that Buddhism is interacting with both the scientific-based uh, criteria for what uh, constitutes truth, uh, the Judeo-Christian heritages that we have that are influencing us, our romantic transcendentalism, which has influenced American thinking about the individual. Uh, our, our notions of self in the West are, are very different than our notions of self in the East. These are all very, very, you know, I would say... Uh, challenging and complex uh, cultural and social forces uh, that we're contending with. You make it sound actually very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of stuff going on. 
There's no shortage of things to think about or to, to work on and, and contemplate, that's for sure. Yeah. I think the key is, uh, you know, to, to, paraphrase, to continue my little metaphor and to paraphrase uh, Leon Trotsky is, is to develop a, a permanent revolution, not to get stuck in, in one mindset. Yeah. I think that's, that's the danger, which perhaps those of us who are protesting or who are concerned about the, mindful, the spread of popular mindfulness, I think that's what we're urging, is that the, the revolution goes on. The, right. the, the, the right. thinking and the, and the reassessment doesn't stop. Yeah, yeah, and I think for that to happen, though, we have to come back to this idea that I'm trying to articulate, that this dialogue should... Uh, be reciprocal, and that requires acts of good faith in the dialogue. Yeah. And and and, and so uh, I think both sides, uh, even to use the word sides is, <laughs> is problematic. But uh, there's been this one upmanship going on. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, you have traditional Buddhists who say, well, you know, you know, that's not awakening. What you guys are doing is, you know, just symptom relief and. And then you have scientists that are doing, you know, engaging in one-upmanship, saying, well, you know, there's, you have an empirically, you know, where's the empirical proof for this? And you have to, uh, you know, bow down to the tools and methodologies of the empirical method in order to have any kind of validity or truth claim. So both sides are, you know, kind of posturing uh, this, this, this kind of uh, intellectual one-upmanship. And uh, I think that's why uh, perhaps the discourse has meant, hasn't been as, as fruitful as it could be. Well, maybe I'm, I, I'm getting a little stuck on one side here, but I, I just don't see how we can possibly get empirical about um, meditation. I mean, how can you measure meditation? The only person who knows what's going on is the subject. Yeah, well, it depends what... Uh, what you mean by measurement and what you qualify as meaningful data. Uh, and if you are coming from a third person, uh, objective scientific materialist uh, framework, then uh, you have to measure physical phenomena. And you measure physical phenomena, for example, by putting people in magnetic resonance imaging machines and looking at their uh, changes in their uh, neural uh, neural circuits and so forth. There's nothing wrong with that, but again, I, I think what we're what we're saying is that if that's the only framework for evaluating validity, then again, we're engaging in this one-upmanship. Yeah, you're quite right. We should right. should include all of us. Yeah, and sense. I think that's you know that's where that's where the field of contemplative neuroscience and is starting to move in the direction of Evan Thompson's work and uh, people like Jake Davis and. And uh, Alan Wallace, and, and they're you know moving more in the direction of of including first person uh, experience in in the research. But I think it's it goes even beyond that because maybe I'm getting on my uh, pet, uh, soapbox here too. Is I think that you know even in the the dialogue between uh, Buddhist adepts, I, I don't even know if I would call it a dialogue, but the research on Buddhist adepts uh, has been primarily. Uh, I think somewhat one-sided with uh, almost like lab rats, you know, well, yeah. in the sense of... Yeah, it's been, the research has been conducted by Buddhists. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 
but I, I don't see I, I don't see the mutual reciprocity going on as, uh, yet uh-huh. uh, between these two very different worldviews. Well, it'll be interesting to see what happens. <laughs> I think that's a good place to stop, Ron. Okay. We, we could do another few podcasts from this, but um, I, I think we've covered our ground very well. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot more in ethics that could have got deep into, but uh, it was good. It was kind of free, free, uh, free-ranging, you know. Good. So, <laughs> where would you like to take the ethics? I mean, just, just can you give me an overview? Where, where else you'd like to go with it? Well, I'm, I'm, you know, that's what I'm going to do the, during the summer. Uh, I have so many uh, great things I've been reading, and and now I'm trying to pull my notes together. And uh, I want to just—I'm not sure how you know I'll. I'm not sure exactly, but I, I want to first of all address, you know, how we've kind of have this misconception of ethics from our Judeo-Christian point of view. You know, just kind of comparatively look at Buddhist ethics, and you know, what's the role of of the ethical component in in this uh, secular mindfulness movement? That's kind of what I'll work on during the summer. And uh, so it was all downhill from St. Augustine, right? <laughs> and. Uh, yeah, this idea of, of the role of faith, this idea I brought up about the non-doctrinal role of faith that may be operating, uh, even when people don't acknowledge that it is, I think that's a real interesting area. That, that would I'm be working. wonderful. That would be yeah. wonderful uh, yeah. for our society to take if we can open to that as a whole. Yeah. yeah, I'm working on an article right now called "In Mindfulness We Trust." Uh huh towards a shared horizon of good faith in the Buddhist secular mindfulness dialogue. Oh, that's very, that, that title says a lot. Yeah, I'm hoping to get this done maybe in the next couple of weeks, this article. Well, I look forward to reading it, and I'm sure our listeners do too. Where, where would they find that, Ron, when it's published, when it's available? Hopefully it will appear in the journal, the East-West Affairs Journal. Okay. And I can't say exactly when. All right, and they can Google that and find it. Yeah, it might be a while before it shows up. And if anybody wanted to contact you about any of this, could they could they reach out? Yeah, uh, they could email me at rpurser at sfsu.edu. Also, I'd like to mention, if I'm still on here, yeah, we're sponsoring a, a major international conference uh, at San Francisco State, uh, uh, Mindfulness and Compassion, the Art and Science of Contemplative Practice, uh, be at San Francisco State University, June 3rd through June 7th. This is exactly the kind of conference that I wished I could always go to, so I had to organize it myself. <laughs> we're inviting uh, both traditional Buddhist and uh, neuroscientists to, to have this sort of dialogue that I just mentioned that, uh, that goes beyond just uh, the one-upmanship game. Uh, and they could look at this at www.mcc2015.org. Okay. But we only have about 30 seats left, so... <laughs> okay, well, yeah. if you're interested, you better go to that website and sign up right away. Ron Purser, Professor of Management at San Francisco State University, thank you very much. This has been a very enlightening talk. Well, thank you. about what you've heard in today's podcast, visit thenakedmonk.com. You'll find an entire webpage devoted to this and other podcasts, as well as dozens of provocative blog posts. 
You can leave comments, chat with other visitors, and email me, Stephen Scatini, with your comments and questions. The music on this Naked Monk podcast is The Sound of Vibor by David Kuckerman from his CD, The Path of the Metal Turtle. The Naked Monk is a labor of love. If you'd like to support our work, you'll find a donate button on the left side of our website, just under the logo. Or if you think there's some way you can help the Naked Monk grow, please send me an email. Thanks for listening. See you next time.